First Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 13 and 14. And the message is simply entitled, Are You Thankful for the Gospel? You know, with the uh, celebration of Thanksgiving and everything, um, the whole history behind it, um, we've gone over it many, many times. And, and yet, um, at the core, the center of all of it was God. Uh, there's nothing wrong with easy, nothing wrong with um, the celebration and all that. But if we lose the fact of what we're giving thanks for and to who we're giving thanks, then that's the problem. If we see it simply as a holiday to get a day off or, you know, hey, we get two, three days off or whatever it is. Uh, and really, when I grew up, that's really what I looked at. You know, it's just time of Thanksgiving and, you know, you get holidays off. And you may be religious, but you really don't understand the concept of thanking God for your health, the nation, everything else. Or even, even though you know mentally the history of the nation... You don't have that relationship with Jesus Christ. And so that makes all the difference in the world. Uh, how you view things and how you look at things and how you uh, respond to things. Not that Christians are perfect or that they always hit the mark. But we certainly are uh, a lot more able to see clearly than we did before being a Christian. And so here in um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, Paul has been his own defense attorney for his ministry at Thessalonica. And he has called um, uh, and cross-examined three witnesses in chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. The Thessalonians, the missionary apostles, and God. The physical evidence in these verses has been based on character, care, and conduct uh, for the Thessalonians. As they've come to them with the gospel. The false allegations uh, by the Jews against Paul and the others that were with him have been exposed as lies attempting to keep the Thessalonians from following Jesus as their Messiah. Paul is saying, mission accomplished. And what he does here now in verses 12 uh, or 13 and 14 here of um, chapter 2 is that he now resides as a judge proclaiming the verdict over the work at Thessalonica by giving a threefold thanks for the word of God. This is the key. From everything and anything you ever put your finger on, it is the gospel. Everything is a result of the gospel and the thankfulness for the gospel, for the word of God. That without it, this world would be so bleak and so hopeless and so dark. And sometimes we forget this because maybe we've walked with God for so many years and we've been the recipients of just ongoing blessings and we just come to a place where we just assume them as, as the, we deserve them or it's just natural. It's almost like an entitlement mentality that we see sometimes. It can happen in Christ. And we, we lose the appreciation for that which God does for us every day and through the years. And if we're not careful, we can even come to the place where we, we are almost arrogant to the place where we can't believe God's so graceful for having us in this church <laughs> and serving Him. And we'll touch a little more on that Sunday with the unprofitable servant in Luke 17. But here he gives us threefold thanks for the word. And in verse 13 it says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, which uh, you heard from us, you welcome it not as the word of man, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, were imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. And so here Paul gives a threefold thanks for the word of God. First, we have the thankfulness for the word of God. It was sown in the beginning of verse 13. It was cast out, sown. Secondly, for the word of God that it took root, the rest of 13. 
And thirdly, the word of God brought fruit. So, it was sown, it took root, and it brought forth fruit in verse 14. A threefold appreciation and gratitude to God for doing what we could never do ourselves. And he did it through the gospel, the word of God. Today, there is such an affront, such a despising of God's word. If you go on, on Google or, or uh, where they have all those videos, whatever, on, um, on the argument of, um, of um, Brian McLaren, he just had an interview and saying that we as Christians have made the, the Bible an idol. And actually contending that we shouldn't, we should be more free with the Bible and interpret it more loosely. Really? Well, that's because McLaren and all the emergent church, for the most part, don't believe we can learn any objective truth from the Bible. Because they live in a relative world of subjectivism like the progressive liberals and educators. Redefining the church, redefining the Christian, redefining Christianity and the gospel. What an affront to God. Paul valued God's word. He gives thanks for the gospel here because it was able to save the Thessalonians. Notice first, the word of God took was sown first. Verse 13, the beginning. Paul thanked God because the Thessalonians were open to the word preached. Listen to this word. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us. The apostles were thankful uh, without ceasing is indicated here for the response of the Thessalonians. The reason is stated in what follows, not what proceeds, as some believe. The thanks, the word there is in being grateful to God who had provided the plan of salvation through the gospel. We are so high-tech. We are so proud of our technology. We depend so much on it. And yet, very few people really understand all the technology that goes on. You may know a little bit, and you may think you know a lot. But in all that can be known, there's so much. The action of thanks is without ceasing in the Greek here. Whenever they thought about it. Not that they were doing it 24 hours a day. And when you think of the gospel and you can think what it did in your life and the life of others, and you see where God took people out of, you have to be thankful. When you get to the place where you don't look at a person's life that's been transformed and you're not thankful to God, you've lost it. You've absolutely lost it. Because remember, we were dead in trespasses and sins, headed for hell. Amazing. Notice the Thessalonians had received the word of God. The word received there simply is a technical term for receiving a formal, outward, traditional, objective truth. It isn't subjective, it's objective. The gospel is very, very clear, very objective. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. There's no subjectivism there. He doesn't say, I'm one of the ways, I'm one of the truths, and, you know... I may give you life. He's very narrow, very objective. White, black and white. Truth and error. Jesus knew nothing about relativity, about subjectivism. He was very, very clear on the only way. This word is used by Paul for the gospel message in Corinthians and Galatians. And uh, the same word is used uh, of Joseph when he took Mary to be his wife. He received her in Matthew one twenty. Notice the Thessalonians received the word of God they heard. And it was from the missionaries, of course, Paul and the others. Um, in chapter 1, verse 5, they came to proclaim the gospel. You were somewhere, sometime, someday, and you heard the gospel. And... Um, and you had no intentions of being saved, but the Word of God pierced your heart and the Spirit of God made it alive and it brought you a place where you made a choice and a decision and it transformed your life. 
the good news, reach your ears. Now, the word notice heard there refers to the active hearing of the message that they had received and heard in the past. At this point, they're safe. Being open to receive the word of God outwardly as they heard it was good. And it's an important step for everybody, but this word alone is only mental acceptance. We can hear things when you as a parent call upon your children or bark up some orders. They hear you. But that doesn't mean they've listened to you and obeyed. Hearing and obeying are two different things. Hearing and listening and understanding are two different things. Being around and hearing the gospel doesn't save a person. It only makes them more accountable if they don't repent. And so the plan of God that he chose to save man is the foolishness of preaching. Not the preaching of foolishness, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 21. With all the high tech of technology and computers and everything else, God still uses the preaching of the gospel to save people. (laughs) No other way. The vessels are frail, flawed, but the powers in the Holy Spirit to convict and to illuminate and to save. It's the work of God. Paul was thankful. Notice in 13 still, Paul thanked God because the Thessalonians opened their heart to the word you preached. You welcomed it. Not as the words of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. So the Thessalonians welcomed the word um, of God. Um, they received it as a guest. Willingly, personally, inwardly, not subjectively. The word of God offends many people. They reject it. They get mad when you tell them they're sinners. They get mad when you tell them that they have to repent. They get mad when you tell them if they die without the Lord, they'll go to hell. They get mad when you tell them there's a heaven and a hell. That's the time that we're living in. This word is used for receiving a prophet in the, in the kingdom. In the gospel of Matthew. They welcome God's word in their heart, not merely their heads. And so when the word of God falls in my heart, then there's transformation. Then there's growth. Then there's a change of life. With a change of mind. My life is transferred from one of darkness to light. How I think. How I live. Though I still have a sin nature. I have to make a choice every day. Whether the old man's going to live or the new man's going to live. Whether I'm going to obey Christ or obey my sinful nature. It's a choice. But now I have the ability to obey. Prior to Christ I did not. And so, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. In Romans ten seventeen it says. So faith is not an emotion. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is not something that you create in your mind. Faith always points me back to the word of God. The revelation, the gospel. If what I believe is revealed in the Bible, then my faith is biblical. If what I have faith in is not the revelation of God's word then it's foolishness. My faith should always point me back to God's word. It's objective truth. It's something that you can rely on forever. It's the absolute truth that God has revealed to us. Um, The Thessalonians welcomed it as divine revelation, not human speculation. Uh, To the Corinthians, Paul made this clear in chapter 1 and chapter 2. That he didn't come with the wisdom of the world, Uh, but with the power of the gospel, preaching Christ Jesus crucified. The Colossians, uh, Paul told in Colossians 2.8 that uh, they were not to to beware of of, uh, philosophy, phileo sophia, the love of wisdom, the traditions of man. Things that people, you know, study all their lives and they contemplate to be or not to be. What does that mean? And, and, and you study for 80 years and you're still asking the same question? And you build your own philosophy of life and death and you base it upon man's opinions? 
who are flawed, who are sinful, rather than the Word of God that is absolute objective truth and that can give you life. And these are the choices that every person has to make. Notice, but as it is in truth, the Word of God. The word truth is elisios. It means indeed surely implying certainty, affirming what it declares to be so. Now, when the um, German rational liberals began their critical studies of the Bible and they began the movement of neo-Orthodox and they invaded all the seminaries in America, they began to demythologize the Bible and, and, and they take away miracles and they say, well, it really isn't the Word of God. It becomes the Word of God once you read it. No, it's the Word of God whether I read it or not. And they began to just take all miracles out and tell you what is inspired, what is not, and, and, and with what authority. And so you always have that branch of, of opposition within the church, not only outside the church, under the guise of academia and degrees. I'm not against education. Get all you can. But once you get it, get over it. And... Um, Use it, don't abuse it. Sift it through the Word of God. That's important. All scriptures inspired by God. Second Timothy three, sixteen and seventeen. The men of old did not speak of their own impulse or origin, as second Peter chapter one, verse nineteen through twenty one says, but they were carried along by the Spirit of God, so that what you possess in your life, ladies and gentlemen, is God's inerrant infallible word. Absolute objective truth that you can count and depend on. Jesus never implied that there was one mistake in anything. Not one scripture, not one book of the Old Testament. And Second Timothy and Peter put it all together, old and new, inspired, inerrant, directed by the Spirit of God. You know the parable of the sower depicts the Word of God being sown, as you know. But the various soils indicate the conditions of man's heart, and that's always where the word is sown. It doesn't mean there's different seed. The seed is one, the word of God, but there are four different soils of the heart. And one falls by the wayside, the other on stony ground, the other on thorny ground, and the other one good ground. And those are the four soils, the four types of heart that we are describing the Gospels. Remember Agrippa said to Paul in Acts 26, 28, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. <laughs> Paul said, I wish you and everyone else altogether were as I am, except for these bonds. As he laid the witness on them of the gospel. You almost persuade me to be a Christian. Almost don't count. You must become a Christian. You must embrace the gospel or reject the gospel. You cannot be a pancake half done. You ever bite into pancake half done? I guarantee you, you didn't swallow it. You spit it out. Just like Jesus will spit out lukewarm believers. You rather you're cold or hot. And by the way, you can become lukewarm from both ends. From cold, if you walk out in the room, put a hot cup of coffee here. Now, ice cold glass of water here, leave it here, we'll come back tomorrow. They're both lukewarm. Both ends. It's not one or the other. It's both. We as believers should be so thankful to God that we can discern and not believe every spirit. But we're able to discern and to test the spirits as First John 4, 1 through 3 says. That you have the mind of Christ, that you have the Spirit of God, that you have the Word of God, that you can sit down yourself and read and study and through prayer and ask God to give you direction. And you can sit in a congregation, you can sit in a church, and you can say what that man is saying is biblical, or you can say what that man is saying is not biblical. You can make that judgment in the context, according to the theme of the book that's written, the historical background. You can come to the same conclusions that that pastor can. Same truth, objective truth. 
The Spirit of God confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh. The one who denies it is not of God. The one who does is of God. The Spirit does not confess that Jesus uh, has come in the flesh is not of God. Verse John 4 says there, verse 3. So there's always the attack against Jesus that he had no human body. The Gnostics taught them. Or they take away deity. Or they try to say that he was um, not fully God, not fully man. They have all kinds of different things. The Bible says he's fully God, he's fully man, and he died for our sins, and he rose from the dead, and he destroyed him with the power of death, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he is the only one that can forgive sins and can make us right with God. Nobody else. It's by grace through faith. No works of righteousness. We as believers should thank God for the Scriptures. That we can be good Bereans, Acts 17, 11, to examine those things to find out if they're so. So as I said, you can sit and examine. When you speak to somebody on the street, some of your family members, some of your friends, some of your professors. And they say, well, you know, the Bible just has a bunch of contradictions. Well, hand them the Bible. Say, show me one. They've never read the Bible. They're just repeating the lie that they've heard. Did you challenge them? That you're able to say, no, you're wrong. With all readiness of mind. Searching the scriptures daily. To find out if those things are so. We as believers should be thankful. That we can pay heed to two important things. That Jesus warned about. Matthew 4.24 says. We are to take heed. What we hear. And that's in the parable of the sower. This is to discern truth from error. What we hear. Today there's so much heresy and so much false doctrine going around and people embrace it and think it's the greatest thing since ice cream inside the church. <laughs> I'm amazed. They're not discerning on what they hear. The second one is in Luke 8, 18. Jesus says we are to take heed how we hear. It's also the parable of the sower. This is to decide how we live out what you hear. Take heed what you hear and how you hear. Because what you hear, God holds you accountable for. To those who much is given, much is required. And so we should be so thankful that God has not only saved us and made us alive, but He's given us the ability to understand, to believe, and to obey, and to be able to bring forth this truth in our life. To be a light to others around us. What a great benefit. And what it does is transforms our life. Even as Paul comes to the conclusion of Romans 12. 1 and 2. From all the doctrine that he's talking about salvation. He says, I beg you by the mercy of God to present your body a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God which is your reasonable service. And don't be fashioned to this world system. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To prove what is that good, acceptable and the perfect will of God. The word of God. And do for you and myself what we can never do for ourselves. No amount of degrees, no amount of education, no amount of life experience can do for you what Jesus did for you on the cross and declares through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul, thank God, the word of God was sown among the Thessalonians. And I think of the years that God has allowed us to minister the gospel and the many years as we started in a home study and then, you know, through the YMCA and Seventh-day Adventist and the cockroach-infested theater and everything else. And many years since uh, 1980 that people have heard the gospel, people have been saved and their lives have been transformed. How thankful we are that we've seen God do such a great work in so many of your lives. Because we know where you would be. Because we know where we would be if we weren't Christians. <laughs> We'd be all messed up. And so that's always a good reason to give thanks to God. But notice, secondly, he gives thanks that the word of God took root in the end of 13. Paul gave thanks to God that the word was working in power, which also effectively works. The phrase um, effectively works means to be actively and efficient. Um, if you know anything about uh, the labor force, you want to make sure that you have people that are efficient in their work. There's a lot of people that punch in for eight hours, but they only work about four. They're not very efficient. 
Um, they're always looking for a break or making a break or they work as slow as they can. And, you know, if you come in and you're a new guy on the job and you're really a hustler, they, the guy will even come over today because everything has done me down today. Hey, hey, slow down. You're making me look bad. You know, we, we, we have a quarter here. We, we have a pace. Uh, there was a time when the work ethic was, was very high, very, um, both from the employee and the employer. Um, he says here it's effectively working. The word is used the majority of the time in the New Testament for various forms of supernatural activity. So this is nothing that man does. This is what God is doing. We get our word energy from this word. It's in the present tense, continuous process. You begin your birth and you continue in Christ as you grow into a young man, a young woman, to, a, to an adult, to a, a, a parent, to a, a, a father and a mother, spiritually speaking. Just as when you bring that baby home from the hospital, you bring them home and within time they start crawling and they start walking and they're running. Then all of a sudden they're in school. Pretty soon they're out of your house. They're married. They're having children. You just keep going. They don't stop growing. They don't stop developing. The same thing in Christ. We're to grow all the time by yielding to the Word of God. The Word of God has continued to work to the very day, bringing forth the good work in their hearts. As they continue to apply themselves to the Word of God. Notice the Apostle has pointed out many ways in which the Word had already worked and was continuing to work in their lives. If, uh, in chapter 1, verse 5, it worked uh, to convert them. In chapter 1, verse 6, it worked against their, uh, their afflictions because they suffered much for the gospel. In chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, uh, it worked to make them a witness to all in Macedonia. They're pagans. They come out of idolatry. They stand out like a sore thumb right now. Some of the people don't like it. Chapter 1, verse 9, it worked for their transformation. It was still working in them because their hearts were open to the Word of God. And so this is always the encouragement and the exhortation in Scripture that we continue, that we continue to grow, to develop, to mature on every level. Then notice Paul thanked God that the Word was working in particular people in you. He's not talking about just people who say they're Christians or people who just go to church or people that are religious. He says in you, those who have received the gospel. So it's for very particular people. The word of God is not for behavioral modification, but for transformation. Today there's a lot of behavioral modification being taught from the pulpit, psychology and everything else. And it's quite inferior to biblical transformation. The word of God is not to make men religious. The Word of God is not to condemn others and exalt oneself. That's one of the biggest gripes that Jesus had against the Pharisees and the scribes always. The Word of God is designed to work in the inner man, as Ephesians 3.16 says. The inner man, the outer man. The outer man is perishing day by day. The inner man is being renewed also by the Spirit of God day by day. Uh, nobody's getting younger. Sometimes people don't see you for quite a while. Maybe sometimes years or a decade, they say, man, you, you look the same. I go, did I look this bad 10 years ago? <laughs> Let's get serious here. I mean, when I try to be complimentary and be nice and all that, but you start out like uh, grapes and you end up like raisins. That's the way it is. The Word of God is designed to counteract the evil heart of man. And the sin nature of man, because the heart of man is deceitfully wicked. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, and that's an affront to the natural man. That's an affront to some of our family members, some of our friends. Because they can't, they believe in the goodness of man. And when people ever try to sell me the bill of goods that man is good, uh, I ask them, where's the evidence? I said, let's start with you. I said, if you're going to say that man is good, finish the sentence, good for nothing, except for sinning. I've been saved for 41 years, but if you want to go sin, I'm ready to go. I'm a good sinner. I have to fight against sin. That comes natural. To not sin, that's supernatural. That doesn't come natural. I have to resist my own sin nature. 
The minute you're born again, you're born into warfare. At the cross, every person is confronted with their sin. At the cross, everything will die so others can live, including the sinner. And if you and I don't die, we don't live, and certainly nobody else will live around us. Notice Paul thanked God that the word was working by faith. Who believe? Faith. The ideas of committing and trusting. Faith is absolutely necessary for the word to take root and to see God in our daily lives. Without it, we cannot please God. Hebrews eleven six tells us. Faith comes by hearing him by the word of God again. Romans ten seventeen. Those that come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews eleven six. Now, faith is to be a commitment of trust in the promises of God's word. Hebrews 11, 17 through 19 tells us that. So it's again, my faith points me back to the revelation of God. What has God said? What has God declared? Now, if we cannot learn any objective truth from the Bible, as McLaren and Paget and all these guys from the emergent church. Why are we commanded to study? Why are we warned of not being doers of the word of God? It would be a mockery. It would make God a liar. It's inconsistent. A new life comes to a new birth. Second Corinthians five seventeen. Old things pass away, all things become new. A life that never ends. We go from being temporal to eternal. This old body is gonna die. It won't be long if the Lord tarries, I'm gonna put this body away. It's gonna go to the dirt. And I'll be instantly present with the Lord. So when you read the obituary, Xavier died, don't believe it. I moved. I got a better mansion. Faith is never passive, but always active, whether in trust or work. For faith without works is dead, James 2.26. Now, what do you do with the concept that we cannot learn any objective truth? We can't be certain if James says faith without works is dead. If we're going to do works, it has to be because we can understand and study, right? So again, the whole philosophy contradicts the Word of God. And yet people accept statements like that. Absolutely. And they call themselves pastors and they call themselves Christians. It's amazing today. It seems like the whole world is under some delusion of blindness in a greater way than ever before. Even our nation in many different ways. Our politicians can lie straight forward to our face and then admit they do and nobody knows. It's okay. But see, we've already said a new vocabulary. Nobody's ever called a liar today. You just misspoke. There's no more terrorism that's oversee contingencies. So a new vocabulary has been set. You've redefined everything. But the dictionary is a dictionary of lies. <laughs> it's not the real world. And so sooner or later, the world comes crumbling down. And the same with the Word of God of those people that mess with it. No different. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11 one says. So what God tells me, I believe, even though I don't understand some things to its full end. Noah was told to build a boat, an ark, for a hundred years. And God told him it was going to rain for 40 days. It hadn't rained. But he believed God, though he never saw rain. He believed God's revelation. Not his own understanding, not his rationale. Not a subjective interpretation. 
but he believed the objective word of God's promise that judgment was coming. And he moved with fear. Again, the parable of the sower presents one rejecting the word altogether. The seed that falls by the wayside. Two other souls of, or hearts refuse to allow the word of God to continue. The stony and the thorny ground. But the fourth, mixed with faith, takes root and continues to depend upon God. Listen carefully. It is a choice. It has nothing to do with predestination. God doesn't predestine one to hell and predestine another to heaven. If God did that, when both deserve hell, God would be unjust. God would be unfair. God could not be holy. He would have to be the most wicked creator. So predestination and free will do not contradict one another. How they both work out, we don't understand it. But God says it's a choice where you spend eternity. God does not decide where you spend eternity. You decide where you spend eternity by your decision about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether he became sin for you and died, and you believe he can forgive you and your need of repentance, or whether you think that's foolishness. That will determine where you spend eternity. God doesn't determine that. If God forces you to go to heaven and then condemns others to go to hell, how does that make him holy? How does that make him just? It wouldn't. For God to fully judge you and completely, justly, in holiness, he must be absolutely innocent of any part of your sin. He must judge you for your sin or judge your sin on his son. The choice is yours. There's only two choices. Either you say, I can face up to my sins and pass the judgment. Or I see myself condemned under the wrath of God. And I fall upon the stone, Jesus Christ. And become broken rather than crushed. But it is a choice. If there is no choice, then why preach the gospel? Why the Great Commission? Why the judgment? It's to hold people accountable for the gospel. So as believers, we should thank God for our faith, trusting in the work of the Holy Spirit. Not our own power, Zechariah 4, 6, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Ephesians 6.10, finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord, the power of his might, put on the whole armor of God. Not trusting in ourselves. Too many are trusting in, in all kinds of gimmicks within the church, all kinds of activities, all kinds of programs, all kinds of this and that, but not the spirit of God and the word of God. They're trusting in their involvement. They're trusting in what they give. They're trusting in the works that they're doing. Instead of what Jesus Christ has done for them. If you look at that, then you have no basis for any boasting at all. And so, we should be thankful in every way that God saves without respect to person. That's why Paul says in Romans um, 1, 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation, the Jew first and to the Gentile. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, that just shall live by faith, according to Habakkuk 2.4. It's the only thing that saves, ladies and gentlemen. It's the only thing that can bring peace to your life. It's the only thing that can guarantee you that when you die, you will be eternally with Jesus Christ. When my son was over in Iraq, and you know that he was gone from the Lord about 16 years, I used to tell him, X, don't die without the Lord. I'd rather not see you here on this earth, but see you in heaven. I said, don't die without Jesus Christ. By God's grace, he didn't die, and he's back with the Lord. But it was a choice, an absolute choice. Paul thanked God 
the word of God took root in the Thessalonians. So not only was it sown, but it took root. What a joy it is to see somebody hear the gospel and see that word take root and see them just take off and live so differently. Notice thirdly, verse 14. He gave thanks that the word of God brought fruit. Paul thanked God that the Thessalonians became imitators of the churches of God in Judea and in Christ Jesus. Uh, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which is in Judea and in Christ Jesus. They were imitators because they were brethren. Mark that well. Brethren refers to being born again of the same womb. They were in the same family. There was a resemblance. Now, if you're of the same family, you're brothers and sisters. You may not, you're not twins, you're not triplets or quadruplets or whatever, but there's a resemblance you can tell when there's families. Some, some families have very strong genetic things and, and you line them up and you know they're just like cookie cutter. I mean, they're, they're, they're related. And even when there isn't features that are related, when you're around them enough, they, they have certain mannerisms, certain ways of saying things or certain, you know, because you're family. You resemble one another. So, a Christian who's born again over in China, a Christian who's born over in Mexico, a Christian who's born over in New Zealand, they should, all three of them, act the same. Because they have the same Word of God, they have the same Holy Spirit, they have the same Lord and the same mind of Christ. Mexican Christians aren't different than Australian Christians. Christians in England aren't different than those in Russia. They're the same. The same family. They were imitators. The word really is mimics in the sense of disciples of Jesus. Because he's our ultimate example. They were imitators in the sense that they were waiting for Jesus to return, as he said in chapter 1, verse 10. By the way, in every chapter he speaks about the coming of Christ for the church. In every chapter. Of First Thessalonians. The rapture. They're waiting for the rapture. To be caught up. Are puzzled. Second Thessalonians is the second coming. When he comes back in judgment. First Thessalonians, he comes back for his church. Second Thessalonians, he comes back with his church. That's a big distinction between the two. They were imitators in the sense that they were walking worthy of the kingdom. Now notice they were imitators of the churches of God which were in Judea. Here's the reference. The churches of God identifying their spiritual birth from heaven in contrast to the assemblies of men, even the synagogues. So even though the early Christians were all Jewish and, and, and they did go to the synagogue to minister, they were Christians. They weren't following the law anymore. Paul the Apostle went always to the synagogue, but he went to preach Christ. And by the way, there was no sacrifice in the synagogues. It was in the temple. You went to study the word at the synagogue. The word church, as you know, is ecclesia. It means those called out, appearing 115 times in the New Testament. And you know what book it appears the most? You think it would be the Gospels, right? No, the book of Revelation. 20 times. And that's in the first three chapters. <laughs> And the last time is in chapter 22, verse 16. One time. 21 times, the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is all about the church. About the church being ready to be removed from the earth. The church that's with Jesus Christ as the tribulation is going on here for seven years. The church of Jesus Christ that comes back to set up the kingdom. The church of Jesus Christ that reigns with Him for a thousand years. The church of Jesus Christ that goes on into eternity with Him. We're called out of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of His dear Son, Colossians 1.13 says. Notice the churches of God in Judea refer first to the original one in Jerusalem. And those that have sprung forth because of the persecution. Um, the church was birthed at Pentecost, empowered by the Holy Spirit. God asked to the church, David, such as should be saved, and it grows through the Word of God. Not through church growth, not through programs, not through activities, but through the Word of God. If you eat healthy food and you exercise, 
you'll grow and develop real good. If you eat bad food, you'll be sick sooner or later. Anemic. Some people eat some food that's really bad and they die. It's no different spiritually. Notice they were imitators due to the fact that they were in Christ Jesus. Here's the key. The ability was due to accepting Jesus Lord and Savior, identifying themselves as brethren in the church of God. Individually, brethren, family. Corporately, the church. Those called out of doctors into light. Their identity is distinct from any other assembly called out. They were the church of God in Christ. And it's never changed. Now, the emergent church has a new vocabulary also for the church. They don't have church. They have campuses. <laughs> yeah, we have one. We have a second campus. Huh? It's church. We're the church. We're not a campus. We're a church. We're the church of Jesus Christ. Why would we want to change church to campus? Because you want to be more secular, more accepting, more mixing in with the world, more cultural, right? Wow. It may seem insignificant to you, but it isn't. Notice Paul thanked God that the Thessalonians endured persecution as the churches in Judea. Here's a real test of your Christianity. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. They manifested the very same endurance and perseverance of all others who had preceded them. They were the target of the unbelieving world. The minute you're born again, you're a target. There was a time when Christians and Christianity was respected in the United States. Now it's a target. It's no surprise. It's not a slam. It's just a fact. Every aspect of our society, public, whether it be police force, fire department, educational, even military. Everything's politically correct. You can worship. You can pray. You can idolize anything except Jesus Christ or Christianity. That's the target. It's amazing to me. What did Jesus ever do that was evil? If these people would do a historical study on what Christianity has done for the world and in any country that it's gone, what it's done for the ignorant, for the evil, for women, what it's done for society, those who have grabbed a hold of that gospel and it's transformed, it's transformed their families, their neighborhoods, their nation, those who have given themselves to it. But we know that the God of this world blinds people. We know as the Lord gets closer to coming back, that the darker the day gets. And so it's no surprise to us as believers. But see, as Christians in America, we've never received persecution. But the rest of the church and the remaining in the world throughout the 2,000 years have suffered tremendously. We keep you on the up and up about those who are being persecuted for Jesus in Iran right now. Many will give you many of the names in prison for their faith. And an incredible work that God is doing, converting many Muslims in Iran. We've gone over to Turkey and done some discipleship with them, many of them that come over. And God is doing a great work. But the only thing you and I know about persecution is what we read in commentaries. Or what we hear over the internet. But we see the times changing in our nation. We certainly see the face of, 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 of not a friend anymore. But the Bible has told us it never was. <laughs> we just didn't believe it. They were like Paul. They had been persecuted for their faith. They had suffered 
In the same manner of the churches of Judea from the Jews. Paul suffered from the Jews. Now you remember, Paul persecuted the church. He killed Christians. He imprisoned Christians. He caused them to blaspheme. And then God appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And he was transformed. He went from enemy number one to number one disciple and apostle. (laughs) Incredible radical life. He was as fervent in preaching the gospel as he was in persecution. The man was unstoppable. The parable of the sower reveals again the seed that had not no root. It allowed the tribulations and the persecution for the word of God to affect the person and to leave Christ. The one that fell among thorns, the word was choked out by the cares of the world, deceitful riches. But the good ground again brings forth 30, 60, 100 fold. So it's always a choice. Whether you continue in Christ, whether you compromise in Christ, whether you walk away from Christ, it's a choice. Certainly, um, A husband and wife are bound by God for life according to the Bible. But sometimes people make bad choices and they walk away from their marriages. A woman cannot force a man to love her. A man cannot force a woman to love him. You cannot force each other to remain together. And certainly God doesn't force you. To walk with him. He respects your choice. But once we sow. We have no. Freedom on what we're going to reap. If you sow beans. Don't expect watermelons. The Bible says. If we sow to the flesh. We reap corruption. We sow to the spirit. We reap everlasting life. It is a choice. And so God exhorts us to walk with him. To um, trust him. To look to Him, that we not be deceived, that we not be pulled away, that we not go to the left or the right, that we not make shipwreck of the faith. And so we as believers should thank God we're able to bring forth fruit after the nature of the church. In fact, Jesus said in John 15, 16, and 7, that we're called to bear much fruit. We are to have our fruit unto holiness Romans 6.22. That's another marking of the emerging church. They will mock you if you're not up to date with the culture. My Bible says I'm to be ignorant concerning evil. Wise concerning good. And so according to the emerging church, if I'm not up to date with all that's going on in the world and the youth, then I'm out of touch. The Bible says I'm supposed to be out of touch with the world. (laughs) I don't need to know about the new sin or anything else. Sin's the same. It just comes in different packages, different colors, but it's all the same. Trust me, you and I have not experienced or done anything that hasn't been done in previous generations. Technology only makes you be a smarter sinner. That's all. A more corrupt sinner. Nothing new under the sun, Solomon said. And so we are to yield to the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians five twenty-two and 23. We as believers should thank God then that he is the one adding to the church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. In the midst of wherever we are now is America. I am not discouraged. It's difficult at times to see our nation and the things that are going on. But, again, the gospels told me about this. And so my eyes are to be on Jesus Christ. And I'm to be... Thankful to see God work in the midst of us in spite of the difficulty. In fact, God does greater works when there's greater persecution. It always has been. Persecution has never hurt the church. It has only purified it. Some of you um, may be too young to remember the uh, Cultural Revolution in China with Mao. Maybe you've read about it. First thing they did is they took all Christianity out, all the books, all the teachers, and the Cultural Revolution began. Now, where's China? They're into capitalism. That didn't work for them. 
Now we're going into socialism and they're going into capitalism. <laughs> Two different directions. Amazing to me. It has been said that the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. Get yourself the um, devotional Jesus Freaks, volume one or two. And read about the modern day martyrs. Not just Fox's Book of Martyrs of the first century, but the current ones in our day. That are killed for their faith. With this whole thing with ISIS. Killing Christians. Not only Christians, others, but primarily Christians. They're the main target. It's amazing. Get on uh, YouTube and pull up the video on, um, on Stanford. As a guy stands on the steps of Stanford with an ISIS flag. About 15, 10 feet long the pole. Flying the flag back and forth, ISIS, and he's talking about how they're only killing because America's this, America's that. And for two hours on Stanford, not one student or teacher, professor objected. Finally, he lights up a cigarette. One student went up, hey, dude, they're going to kick you off the campus. Put that out. Puts it out. Nothing about the flag for two hours. And then, guy goes back and gets an Israeli flag. Stands on the steps. Five seconds is all it took. In 30 seconds, they had more than 100 insults. That's where America is, ladies and gentlemen. The Trojan horse of America is public and universities education. Be aware of what's going on. Realize that God's on the throne. He's not biting his nails. But understand what's happening. <laughs> so you don't get sucked into this lukewarmness of the church that's going through. That you stand fast in the word of God. You can discern truth from error. And you can yield to the power of God to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And so Paul thanked God the word brought fruit through the Thessalonians. What a great thing to give thanks you might just think about it tomorrow as you sit around with your family, your friends. I don't know how long you've been walking with God. I don't know what God took you out of. I don't know what you're in the midst of. I don't know where you're going. Some of you guys, they're in military. You know, if you're going to be deployed or not, make sure you're walking with God. You know, look to Him. And there'll be a lot of people around you that God will use you to reach them. Um... Great opportunity. We want to thank you guys for your service and everything. Amen. But um, just being thankful for the word, man. It's sown, it took root, and brought forth fruit. Simple things that make all the difference in the world. What is your worldview? If your worldview... It's not biblical. You're going to be deceived. Guaranteed. No if or but about it. It's not if. It's when. Father, thank you for your grace and love. We still thank you for your word. Pray for every person here, and I pray your hand be upon us, Lord. You would deal with our hearts. And Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, you would speak to their hearts, those that are over the internet, Lord. Lord, we thank you. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. You've heard the gospel. Jesus loves you. He's God who became man, died for your sins, and rose from the dead. And He alone can forgive you for your sins. He alone can make a new creature of you and give you eternal life. If this is your desire, it's by the grace of God. If you see yourself as a sinner, it's the grace of God. If you want to be born again, repent of your sins. This is a prayer. Your prayer to God, not to us. Asking Him to forgive you and to come into your heart and change your life. It's called repentance. You can repeat after me. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, 
for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.